I've had a long and happy, incredible career helping children find safe, loving, forever, fully accepting homes. That was Elisa Elwin, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. Hi, Rich Bolas here, and I want to say a big thank you to everyone who supports the podcast by writing a review on Apple or Spotify, as it helps massively. I read every review, and it's always great to know that an episode has resonated with you. So, big hug and heartfelt thanks. Today, I have Elisa Elwin on the show. Elisa is an absolute powerhouse of energy and has had such an amazing career from becoming the coordinator of services for child sexual assault in a regional Australian town straight out of uni at the age of 24 to running a global publishing business that encourages families to get out and about with their kids. Elisa has dedicated her life to helping children grow up in safe and loving homes and fully stands by how that is the foundation of security and self-esteem that we can nurture in children. I have to warn you though that a few of the stories are quite confronting and might be triggering to some people so be kind to yourself and maybe save this episode for later if you're not feeling tip-top at the moment. Anyway I hope you really enjoy this wild ride of a conversation with Elisa Elwin. Elisa Elwin welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Rich. <laughs> it's so good to have you uh, on the show today, just to, to talk about the amazing career you've had and and what you're doing now. But before we get into that, could you give us a little bit of background on how your career started, Elisa? I decided to study social work. And it wasn't because I needed to give back. It wasn't any sort of opportunity to help. There'd been a significant amount of family dysfunction in my background, including having lost contact with my mother when I was four and not seeing her for many years and then having a less than spectacular relationship with my stepmother and subsequently. And I just, I never felt happy at home. And my agenda was to find happy, safe, places for kids where where kids are genuinely cherished and loved that was always my original agenda in going into this um after my four years of study there was a recruitment program to get social workers out into the regions because there's always a a lack of staff out in remote areas and the department of health for the urana and far western health district came into sydney university and offered incredible jobs to people and would help you move out. I put my hand up and I was interviewed and I was offered the position of coordinator of services for child sexual assault on a 12-month program to recalibrate the relationship between police department of health and the family and community services to create a model that was the least stressful and most beneficial for the child rather than something that each of those services needed and so at the ripe old age of 24 with no previous experience I moved out to Dubbo into the nurse's home at Dubbo Base Hospital which was supposed to be a short-term move, but I enjoyed myself so much with those incredible women who came in from the land to study nursing, and they're a special type out there. You know, the circular driveway at the front and all the youths used to hover in the afternoon to pick up whoever to go and take them off to the properties. And um, My role was extraordinary, and I learned an incredible amount. My learning curve was 
enormous and I'm very, very fortunate to have had the most extraordinary supervisor and boss there. Leila Samuel was her name and she coached and guided and supported and nurtured me in the addition of having weekly debriefing and counselling sessions. Um, the one thing I did learn is that I am not suited to work in child sexual abuse. And the reason for that is I was angry and distressed at every single case that presented to me. And I wasn't able to take an emotional step back, even with as many supports and awareness provisions as I had. So uh, at the end of 12 months, with the stomach ulcer firmly in place, having been diagnosed at the hospital just across the corridor <laughs> by one of my then doctor friends, I came back to Sydney and decided to get into a career area of social work, a niche that had no perpetrators. Wow. And that that led me to the area of disabilities, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine. Like 24 years old, straight out of uni, what was it like? Mm. Like the, the When did it sort of dawn on you? Was it like the first day, the first week? like what you'd sort of gotten into? I loved the area. I love country people and the work that they do and the remote communities or living on the land. I appreciated enormously everybody who works in those vast regional distances, trying to ensure that there are service coverage and supports wherever they can offer it. It wasn't about being there. What it was was the confrontation of the reality of the seeing so many families being so dysfunctional and that children were the casualty of that. And in the bush, for example, the, the father owns the land, the father is the perpetrator, there's an isolated incident. Usually what would happen in a city is the father would move out and the children would be protected with the mother. That couldn't happen, so the children were removed and often moved hundreds of kilometres elsewhere into some sort of foster care and effectively they were being punished for being abused. And there was also, a, I worked a lot with the Aboriginal Legal Service out there as well because the communities that were most impacted by drinking in particular and were hubs of child sexual abuse as well. And so having to become aware and culturally aware and supportive, but at the same time, all child protection work has the child at the centre. You look after, nurture, protect the child. And so the people, the perpetrators, the families, they aren't considered. It's the safety of the child that's paramount. And that is the same in New South Wales child protection case law today and all the court systems. And so becoming child-centric was the start of that for me. This is about protecting a child in all the parameters that you, you have there, but learning about... <clears throat> the timing of the abuse and the impact that has on development and the long-term consequences in behaviour and actions and sense of self-esteem and self for anybody that's been through that experience as a child. And I could, I still can't understand. I know why, but I cannot understand the mind state of a perpetrator 
an adult that wants to sexually abuse children, I it's unfathomable to me in any sort of ethical and behavioural sense. And I know why it happens <laughs> and I understand the background because I have, I've done the study, but I think that was my downfall in that role because I was just angry. Yeah. What, why is it? What's the, um, what, what came out of the studies? Uh, often it's because they had been sexually abused themselves. Whatever you experienced as a child, unless you work on that and create a new path for yourself. And when I say work, I mean serious therapy and acknowledging what happened and creating a new path and finding what your triggers are. Um, unless you do that, you can default back. Yeah. And, I mean, do you think then it is, would you say it's almost not guaranteed, but if someone has had something happen to them, if they don't do the work, there's a really high likelihood that they could actually fall foul of of being a perpetrator themselves in future then? I wish I could quote the recent studies. I've actually been researching it over the last couple of weeks for um, personal interest and, and for a friend who's in a difficult circumstance at the moment. And I believe 80% of perpetrators who are prosecuted or found out have been abused as children. I would also suggest that there are many that are never found. Yeah. And and there is also a combination of issues with anybody that's been sexually abused as a child. So those people were targets. It's also a significant percentage of people in jails and incarcerated who were sexually abused as children. It doesn't mean they've gone on to be perpetrators, but it certainly means that there's a lifelong impact on your capacity to manage the world as a trusting place yeah and you do whatever you can to get through how do we even begin to sort of break this cycle then on a on the scale needed (laughs) you can see I'm, i'm struggling a little with this i mean we obviously have huge issues with violence in our community having uh domestic violence be one of the most prominent issues we've now got domestic violence leave that's just been instituted and there's awareness campaigns with white ribbons and teach your sons how to be respectful of women um that start to actually break i don't know any country place tribe family in the world where incest and sexual abuse is an acceptable practice so it's just horrifying to know how prolific it is with that worldwide condemnation and lack of acceptance so what is it that underground my belief is that there needs to be more conversation about it that there needs to be an education of kids in particular to be able to talk about it and to be heard that is always one of the issues, and I know Grace Tame in particular was was very vocal about it in her time as Australian of the Year, that if you're not heard and you're not believed and you don't have the safe space to tell and then you're not protected once you do tell, and even when that happens, if nothing happens, even if you're protected and the perpetrator's still out there and having a voice, and there's so much wrong with the system still. It's appalling. 
And we are moving into a better space where we're able to have these conversations publicly. My era, nobody was allowed to say anything and if it did, get on with your life and we're not doing anything about it and not believed. Yeah. Yeah. And the damage is, is lifelong. If the perpetrator is a family member, if it's a father, a grandfather, a brother, an uncle, a cousin, they are the adults that children respect yeah. and trust and develop their sense of self and safety with. And if that person that you love and trust that you're supposed to rely on damages and hurts and abuses you, it leaves a lasting ricochet in your capacity to trust the world yeah, and your ability to move forward feeling confident and safe. The biggest issue that happens is that people go into every circumstance waiting to be hurt or damaged or frightened. It's a fight-flight response that's just set off in your brain when you're abused in that way. Trauma, childhood trauma, complex childhood trauma, sexual abuse being a significant part of that. Yeah, and it carries on and on, doesn't it? Just uh, do you get, Forever. Do you it get, doesn't go away. Yeah, it that's just right. It managed. Yeah. Did you ever catch up with any of the um, children afterwards or did you ever go back to Dubbo? I've been back to Dubbo a few times. But no, I didn't see any of the clients that I worked with at the time. What were you wondering about longitudinal? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was just wondering. These I'm talking in in research terms. Yeah. Yeah, were you wondering how they were after, <laughs> like when they'd grown up, or what the scenario was for them and family? Yeah, that that was exactly what I was thinking. I, I wonder, mm. you know, because it seems like, especially being back in say. You know, even if you just go back before computers, like being able to track and, and hold on to all this information and data is really hard. I mean, we're talking paperwork in disparate areas and all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. it must be a massive mammoth task to even try and hold all the information together for these sort of longitudinal sort of studies to even be researched into and so on. So we probably still don't know so much. Oh, no, there's a, there's amazing research and books written now. I've just been reading one called The Body Keeps Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, spelt K-O-L-K, and he works um, specifically with childhood trauma and trying to redefine the diagnostic statistical manual. That's always a beauty, the DSM, <laughs> yeah. which is just released its fifth and still doesn't have a diagnostic tool for childhood trauma. They try to fit them into the... PTSD framework and it doesn't have the same implications. But anyway, he has worked with many extraordinary people over the years, including a woman named Pia Melody with a double L, and she came up with the therapeutic concept of uh, complex childhood trauma and the theory of developmental immaturity. Here we go. Ah, and throwing a whole bunch at you now. <laughs> and the, 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 the reason, the absolute essence behind that is whenever your trauma impacted you as a child, you were so busy protecting yourself in whatever way you could, whether that was freezing or running or defying or becoming overcompliant or hiding in your room and your antennae and awareness 
that you actually didn't have the opportunity to, for normal developmental milestones in a safe and loving environment and you get stuck in that place and you miss things. At the time, you might lose your capacity to do numbers. You definitely lose your trust in the world. But those protective measures become your way of managing difficulties all the way through your life unless you find a different way to deal with them. And there's many different therapies and steps to do that. But basically it's acknowledging when they happened, working through them, if there's any hidden memories to find those, and then putting them in place, accepting them, acknowledging what you do at the time if something confronts you and then finding a different path. Yeah. Okay, so if I feel unsafe, I will attack that person or run away or leave the room or I don't need to do that. I'm strong, I'm loved, I'm fine. I can take a deep breath, centre myself, come back to mindfulness and frontal, frontal lobe rather than the whole core fight and flight response and then breathe it out. <laughs> until there's a safety and you can move into a different measure. Yeah. I, it, Big. It, work. Yeah, work, work, work. It's, it's, it's the... It's, 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 no, it's, it's, it's it, absolutely. I mean, it's it's such important <laughs> work. I mean, it, it when you were speaking then, it, may, it reminded me of um, Richard C. Schwartz's work on internal family systems and that whole idea oh. of, of like, almost like, uh, say... You, a six-year-old has a a really traumatic event and there's almost like a, a sub personality that springs up to protect the six-year-old in that instance and usually it's almost like a mirror of the the action that's that's meted out on the on the child and but that that personality sort of sub personality stays there almost as like a guard and then maybe there's another one in another traumatic situation and 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 we sort of build up all these these sub-personalities that face outwards and are like guards essentially trying to protect the self. And it's only when, you know, after, say, 40 years or something, actually in inquiring as to what parts of the, the system are, are there, it's a, it's a really sort of abstract way of looking at it, but the idea is that you sort of question what's going on like asking parts to show themselves and people can actually see and actually interact with these parts almost like um what's that gestalt therapy but actually internally and it, it's just um, amazing some of the stories you hear but actually sort of then acknowledging the parts sort of facing out don't even know that the person's grown up and they still think they're protecting that six-year-old or and it's only when the person does that work to reintegrate and actually show the parts that they can trust it and that the per the self actually is in control and can look after itself now and they can sort of you know they can rest they they don't have to be on on the defensive and so there it reduces all the triggering and it, it was an amazing book when you were talking about that it just made that spring to mind well, but I was just going to say that covid was a spring point for many people who had histories of trauma and PTSD and complex issues that they might never have dealt with because their lives were too busy. If you're on a treadmill and you're going to work and coming home and doing your stuff and looking after the kids, then there's not enough time to actually sit and be with yourself. And I was a person who was isolating alone in Sydney, not by choice, 
One daughter was in England, the other one was in Canberra, which might as well have been England for all the contact that we could have state by state. And um, yeah, my ex-husband moved over to Belfast. That was the good news. Sorry, I probably shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) So alone I was. And I didn't, as as frightened as I was for the world and as, as lacking in contact, I think the biggest issue for me was not touching anybody else for five months. That yeah. was, I had to go to the dentist in the middle of it because I broke a filling and it was an emergency and everybody's masked up. And I walked in and he touched my face and I burst into tears and he said, oh, I'm so sorry, does that hurt? And I said, no, no, the first person who touched me is Okay, so just saying that I travelled a lot with my work. I'm busy. I have contacts in different countries and staff working in Spain and (laughs) I'm on. And because I live alone, I've been able to do that. But when that was all gone, you just sit with yourself and the shit comes to the top. Yeah. And all those things that you might have been suppressing and the, the fact that we were helpless, we couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. There was nothing we could do to change this. And we had no template to know how it was going to play out. So the helpless and hopeless. Yeah. And it sent many, many people into very dark places. And that is also part of the... Uh, the great resignation. The ongoing men- yeah. Oh, the great... And the ongoing mental health problems. And I was chatting to somebody who works in New Access, which is part of the Beyond Blue services yeah. for people who... who assist in small business and their practice is cognitive behavioural therapy and it's a very strict six-week structured program but they do their research on it so you've got to ask a whole bunch of questions in the beginning and then every session there's a couple and then they follow up with you four months later and I did it for myself I have my own business and at the end I was just chatting to him and I said my gorgeous therapist Matt and I must say that I failed in every component of my six weeks. All I had to do was have a shower before 8 o'clock in the morning and stop work before 10 o'clock at night. I didn't do it one day in the entire six weeks. <laughs> I always had a really good excuse. Like, I was going to go for a walk, and so I didn't want to shower before the walk. And Oh, but my Spanish guy needed some help, so I had to stay up to work. And he just like, ugh. <laughs> He didn't say fail. He said, you still have some work to do. And I went, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're not there yet. (laughs) Yeah, but he was saying, I asked him, did you find that people living alone in this study that you're doing struggled more than those that were infractious or difficult? I'm not suggesting that living with other people in COVID was in any way a better option (laughs) unless you had a large home and a place to remove yourself but at least you had contact and yeah. community and he actually said they left that out of the questions oh, really? okay put that back in oh, yeah. but he did say that the, they have very firmly established that the area that has the highest post lockdown and ongoing struggles with their mental health are melbournians yeah it was brutal you won't be surprised no yeah the ring of steel and yeah. the lockdowns there. I think we went through yeah. something like, it felt like about seven yeah. lockdowns. And they were full on. Yeah. We talk as if it's over, but it's not over. Yeah. Like, I still think that, like, we've sort of tricked ourselves into, oh, yeah, we're back to work now. We're all busy again. But there's so much leftover stuff to work through. There are so many people still struggling that 
it's almost like, come on, business as usual now. Let's get back to it. Have you had COVID? Yes. Yeah. I managed to avoid it for about two and a half years and and then it got me. And, and it was, well, we just had like two weeks of flu. And then we had about three days off and then straight into a family fully fledged COVID. What was worse? Flu. Yeah, flu. Although, I mean, flu, flu was worse pain-wise. I mean, just night sweats, shivers, fever, all that sort of stuff, headaches. <laughs> I actually thought it was COVID. Like, I was sure it was COVID. And then COVID was just listless, just couldn't do anything. I was literally, I couldn't even binge watch Netflix. I was gutted. Everyone had talked about, oh, yeah, you get to have a week <laughs> off and just binge watch Netflix, which I was kind of, well, that's a bonus. And I couldn't even watch TV. I was just so not engaged in anything. I just had, I was pottering. Mm. That was it. That was all I could muster. Mm. Have you had it? No. Oh, you've done well. I've been exposed. But what I don't think, I don't think it's anything I've done. I mean, clearly living alone has benefits and I don't socialise massively in large dinners and lunches and all the things that I used to do. But at the same time, I've been in very close contact with people who've called me the next day or that night saying i've just tested positive we shared an uber I mean, okay this is it like oh <laughs> here it comes no i mean we're, no <laughs> i must have spent a fortune on those <laughs> yeah. the rats yeah. so i've got to have it now like really i might be one of those asymptomatic because i've got to have it i just haven't and i'm not actually frightened of getting it now there's almost a part of me that says <laughs> I must admit, though, that through my um, two vaccinations and then two boosters, I am one of those people that gets violently ill at each one. Oh, so wow. I have to yeah. give myself a three-day window post-injection, yeah. and it hits me pretty much on the dot of five hours after the injection, oh, wow. and I have vomiting, diarrhoea, um, sweats, fever, just like your flu thing, shakes, and then slowly, slowly it finishes 36 to 38 hours afterwards and I, I know wow. I thought it was just the first two and when I went in for my booster and I said oh thank goodness this is just a booster I won't get a 60 but oh, I'm so sorry to tell you this. <laughs> yeah hate to be the bearer <laughs> of bad back, news yeah you're back to zero antibodies <laughs> yeah get ready you know <laughs> you know that's an amazing thing, isn't it? When you are so boiling hot that you throw it doesn't matter what temperature it is, and you do, and then you start to freeze. Yeah. I was in bed with the dinner and electric blanket, <laughs> like full gear on, and I was still cold and my teeth were chattering. I, mean, uh -huh. oh, I should film this because <laughs> 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 this is the injection to stop getting COVID. Yeah. My theory is, however, long way around, I have a tendency to do that with stories, maybe I have spectacular antibodies because of my reaction. I was going to say, they'll be knocking on your door, like wanting to take samples and say, hey, we've got to distill this. <laughs> I will be the person, yeah. I will be the Matt Damon yep. of that. <laughs> what was that movie? I went somewhere he was the one captured because... Gwyneth Paltrow, his wife, who'd had the affair and died. And sorry, I'm throwing all these. I actually don't know that one. That must be one I missed. Oh, I'm going to have to look it up. Okay. Are you? That'll yeah. be me. My blood will be worth gold. <laughs> gold. Okay, back to topic. Where yeah. are we? So, so basically, you'd move. Yeah, you'd you'd basically move back from Dubbo to the city, but you were still working in government yeah. departments. 
Ah, okay. So I realised I, I wasn't necessarily the best person to work in child sexual assault and protective services. And so the next job that I was really fortunate to get was in disability services. And I was the answering the phone with this, the developmental disability support worker for Mandalay, the developmental disability services. And if we were allowed, we'd shorten it to DDS. <laughs> that must have taken we quite were... <laughs> a while to get the hang of. Yeah. <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, with a genuine will and wish and skill set to be supportive of people, but it was to be in an area of social work as, as where it was nobody's fault. Yeah. Just as a baseline. No perpetrators. Happens to anybody. What exactly were you doing in that role? Was supporting in the Manly Warringah area every family that had a person with a disability living at home with them. Yeah. And so that could be from giving birth to a child with a disability, schools to adult parents with their adult children still at home in their 80s and 60s. or And it was to supply them with whatever they needed to get through. Yeah. Whether that was support, listening, being linked into services, finding grants, home modification, uh, school systems, after-school care, respite care, work programs, social programs, whatever might be needed. Because disability is such an enormous range. People think wheelchairs or people think Down syndrome, but it, it's as varied as any. I'm not even able to say that. Um, how my particular role there I kind of developed a niche because I had just studied my diploma of clinical hypnotherapy and be very careful, Rich. <laughs> you might just fall asleep by the <laughs> If I might get you to do things. I'm feeling, but, no, I'm not, I'm not feeling yeah. sleepy yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did it in a therapeutic context. And for me, it was about putting a post-hypnotic suggestion very lightly. I didn't want to do deep therapeutic yeah. work with it. I wanted it to be a support in behaviour modification. Yeah. And so it was about anger management and um, behaviour modification, basically. And I became the expert with um, young men living at home with their ageing and elderly parents. And they might have had the emotional capacity of a team let's just say I'm, I'm being incredibly generic here yeah. and so they're defiant oh, and, wow. and they're strong men you know yeah. and I found that this um, hypnosis was incredibly helpful because anybody can be hypnotized but you have to be willing to do it if you yeah. say you can't hypnotize me I am not the person to be able to do that you have to work with me and there were no barriers with these people with intellectual disability. None. Wow. And so the first time I hypnotise somebody, there's usually a, a, a timing process where yeah. you take them deeper and deeper and relax and you've got to be really careful in your positioning because when they go into a hypnotic state, if their legs are crossed, they can get cramps. If <laughs> And this first person, I'll, I'll call him David, he, he was hypnotised so quickly he fell off his chair. I didn't even have a chance oh, to wow. say I'm just relaxed. I know. <laughs> I had to bring him straight back out again. 
But we, we were working together with the behaviour management for him because he got very angry very quickly. Yeah. And so we found other ways of expressing his displeasure other than anger, and it was amazing. Um, the other thing I did, I ran groups for siblings of people with a disability, particularly yep. children with children. And I also was trained by uh, family planning to run a sexuality course for people with disabilities. And it ended up being a socialising course, but not necessarily <laughs> With each other, we weren't talking about arranging dates. It wasn't yeah. the tenure of the, <laughs> yeah. the manga, the early days, but it was all about uh, body protection and understanding puberty and what was happening to you. And and clearly, there had to be a, a level of intellect. And it was amazing the people that came in. And the first session that we had, we had to identify body parts. And so I had a great big board, and we had an anatomically correct doll, and we'd pick up the boy doll and the girl doll, and they'd have no clothes on and everybody would be giggling and laughing and throwing their heads off. And the first thing we had to do was write on each board the names that they knew for each of the parts. Yeah. I have never heard so many names for penis or vagina in my life. And every single one. Like as the, the What was some of the what was some of the favorites? Well there was lots of that weren't like the bits or the front bit or the back yeah. bit or the bottom or the private parts or the um tummy banana. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to the the back banana, like is there one there? Like, I there... don't know. I ah. Uh... <laughs> and then another one was um, a lily flower or flower pad for the for child. Just, but they all once they got into it, everybody kept coming up and laughing, laughing. <laughs> also, private and public and appropriate and not appropriate. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, self protection strategies and being safe socially and being able to express yourself, all those sorts of things. That was amazing. Yeah. Loved that work. Loved it. But we also, um, we were based in Collaroy Hospital. And for those of you that have ever been to Collaroy Beach in Sydney, it was a magnificent building on the far south corner of the beach. That was a permanent residential facility for people with disabilities. Yeah. And it was the era when uh, parents yeah. might have a baby with Down syndrome. I keep using that as a generic or a congenital abnormality that wasn't identified until birth. And they would be told gently by their doctor to just place them here, Colorado Hospital, where they'd be looked after forever. You can visit if you want to, but our advice is to go on and have another baby as quickly oh, wow. as possible and move on with your lives. And there was this accumulation of people that had been placed there as babies while their families moved on. And effectively, in, in reality, they were institutionalised. Yeah. They would just line up for the bath, line up for the meals, go into bed. They were all in dorms. They, uh, depending on their level of disability, what was required, and it was just this perpetual roster of, hmm, hospitalisation, basically. So I started the first year of the Richmond Report, which was implemented by the Department of Health, and it was to close down institutions yeah. like that. And so uh, the team bought, I think it was 17 houses in three months in the local area. All the real estate agents were lining up at our doors. <laughs> like, we got one! <laughs> Bye, <out!" laughs> And 
And there was a very interesting reaction from the streets where those places were bought because there was either fear and intolerance yeah. or and definitely judgment or acceptance and support. And so there did have to be some community education around it because who wanted the house with the people with disabilities next to them? What was going to happen? So part of it was to um, integrate people into the community for the community yeah. to become aware and accept. But more importantly, it was to give those people a life. Yeah outside a hospital and to give them a chance to to live live like anybody else yeah so four people per house the matching of those people were really important we didn't put everybody who was the same together as much as that might sound like a, a sensible financial model so there weren't four wheelchair people in a house so it only needed the wheelchair bathroom and pretty much all the houses had to be modified yeah, and a big roster of staff because it was twenty-four hour staffing always, and they became a family. Wow. And yeah, I did that. So I was there for three years. Yeah, and it was wonderful. And then wow. you get a burnout. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, I can't do any more. I'm still seeing the same one hundred and eighty families, and the government and the system and the services and no NDIS. It was just this endless battle for acknowledgement and resources and support and I was burned out after three years and all I can do is uh, there's so much acknowledgement of how much work goes into caring for and loving and accommodating a person with a disability in your lives mm. so another job you ready for the next one totally <laughs> hit me department of Department of Community Services Head Office Adoptions out in Parramatta. So that was a two and a half to three hour commute each way from Manly, depending yeah. on the time. Yeah. That's how committed I was to the job. Wow. And I became part of a an extraordinary team called the Special Placements Unit. And we placed children with special needs for adoption anywhere around the state. And so our remit was to visit families who were considering surrendering at their child and to support them in making that decision without judgment, to place those children into short-term, medium-term foster care, to give the families an opportunity to make the decision without the pressures of the day-to-day -day care and, and fear and to come to terms with if it was a new baby, what that might mean for them and whether they could cope with it or not. Um, and then to find, train, recruit and place children with incredible adoptive families. Yeah. Incredible. That must have been so Who, fulfilling as well. Uh, well, unlike both of the other jobs, there was a, a positive outcome in yeah. most of the cases. It, it certainly wasn't easy work and there was grief and loss and <laughs> lots of difficulty in surrendering a child and I can say without exception where there was a couple involved a father and a mother making the decision versus a single mother whose birth father wasn't involved that neither of there was never a circumstance where they both agreed that this was the course of action to be taken and oh, enormous wow. pain on the part of the the parent usually yeah. the mother yeah and it was either marriage or the child 
or they had four other kids and then this child with intense needs that needed to be hospitalised for the first nine months or etc. Or the parents themselves had special needs, like a mother who was um, blind and she ended up with a, a baby that she couldn't care for with her, her blindness or just a family that came from a different cultural background and in their impression having the baby with Down syndrome, <laughs> here I go again, was actually going to be a, a slur on their other two boys that they might not be able to marry and be part of the community because they would be seen as tainted in this particular community. And so the father told everybody that the baby had died oh. and that nobody knew it had Down syndrome was still alive and was being placed for adoption and that that whole family had a funeral and a burial and a church service where all their friends came and grieved. And behind the scenes there was me working with them to find that little boy a home where he was going to be loved and cherished. And the father had told his wife she needed to um, treat that boy as if he was dead and refused to let her have any meetings with me about the placement. And she was grieving so deeply that we used to meet in secret. Wow. She would sneak sneak out and just so she knew how he was doing and where he ended up and if there was any possibility of her keeping in contact with the adopting family and, and finding out about his future. Yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary. But at the same time, I also worked with um, Far West Children's Home in Manly, just around the corner. Yeah. There was a number of kids who ended up there long term. Like a little accumulation of parents who never came to pick them up. It was quite extraordinary. And institutionally, they stayed. There was a little cohort of them. And when this Richmond report implementation came about, they were also considered and needed to be moved out. And so my role, crossing my previous role in this current one, was to work with those families who left their kids there, none of whom had visited for a very long time, to actually get them to surrender them for adoption so they could have permanent and forever homes and to work with the kids who were all of only mild intellectual disability and, in fact, two of them had no intellectual disability. One had brittle bone syndrome and the other one had um, cerebral palsy to agree to the placement themselves and they varied between 10 and 14 years of age. And I created a My Story book for each of them, talking about their background and where they came from and who their family were and how long they'd been in Far West and who their favourite people were. And then I recruited families specifically for them. So I went on the Ray Martin show with one of those right. <laughs> young people. Yeah. And he was, he was placed with the most marvellous, incredible, beautiful man. And it was the first ever placement of a boy with a single man in New South Wales because it was too much to consider. And coming from that background of child sexual abuse, one of the prime questions in assessment was how how can we prove this, that you aren't? Because the, the boy who was placed with him, his cerebral palsy affected his mouth and he couldn't speak. And so there was the mute thing and we had to teach him signing prior to going for asking questions about protective behaviours. 
So there was always that part of the assessment interview. And this beautiful man who ended up being the most glorious, loving, committed dad went on to adopt two more boys, one from the Catholic Adoption Agency and one from the Anglican Adoption Agency, who were the two that were most horrified in adoption services that this was going to happen and had a happy, harmonious, incredible family. And if we had more people like him, the yeah. world would be a better place. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm not, we, what was the start of this <laughs> So uh, Boy, can you briefly introduce you yourself? No, no. <laughs> Hi, my name's Elisa. I've had a long and happy, incredible career helping children find safe, loving, forever, fully accepting homes. Yeah. And, I think and one of the, yeah. The, that, that was the theme that really came out when we talked the other day as well. This this overarching sort of need for children to feel fully loved and cherished, to, to grow into, you know, able human beings to show up in the world in the in the as the best versions of themselves yes it is the foundation of security and self-esteem and without that there is no coming back from those early days you can't reinvent that later if you don't have that attachment and security and love when you're a child and you know it and you're dealing with it and find the disorganized attachment organized <laughs> there's yeah. all the different if you have the safe attachment model and that's not saying parents are 100 percent right ever but you know you're loved you know you're safe your needs are met and there's firm boundaries in place you can be anything because your core is firm and the connection to your people and the security of that is forever the rest of us that have had complex childhood trauma and whether that be the loss of a parent, abuse in some format, um, experience of loss and death and war and drama. And <laughs> they've done lots and lots of studies about 9-11 and the children involved in that too. So I'm not necessarily saying they have to be a perpetrator, yeah. but if the parent in that case became so traumatised by the event they couldn't offer the child security, then you've got a lifelong adjustment. Yeah. And I'd love to see a study. There probably are some. The kids, <laughs> there's probably many who grew up in safe, secure, attached environments and the ones that were constantly on edge and worried and dealing in a non-secure attachment and the long-term impact of that in terms of where they ended up and the successes that they've made and the happiness ratings in their lives and the management of stress in their cope and anxiety levels. and Yeah. I get the feeling that a lot of the children that grew up in a unsafe or unsecure childhood actually went on to try to figure out more about this. And a lot of psychologists that I speak to got into psychology because they they've really wanted to help fix something that they'd seen that was so wrong or figure out what it was about humans that caused that and how they could write that in some form. Agreed. When I went into social work, the majority of people in my graduating year came in because 
because of, if we can call it lightly, a cause without yeah. a negative impact that they'd experienced personally. And whether that was domestic violence or a family member with a disability or a, an injustice done or a refugee from another country, they all came wanting to create and support and give back to that area that they'd struggled and suffered or, or had family members experience. And one of the really important things of the social work agenda was to make sure that by doing that, you weren't impacting the people you were working with with your own pain. Yeah. So it was, which makes you not only less effective, but actually potentially damaging in the work that you're doing because you're actually, you're working from a basis of, unresolved or unhealed trauma yourself yeah so therapy assessment we had a, and an acceptable number of people drop out once they realized that was the case and they actually shouldn't be doing social work they could find a way to help people in another way other than this interpersonal place yeah hmm. now i mean hmm. you mentioned like yeah you know, your family earlier you've got two daughters haven't you lisa Thank you. What? Your voice, I got off. I went back in the but I am so in awe of my daughters. I so I cannot believe the glorious young women that they've become, and I certainly don't take credit for it. <laughs> I, I just, they're just extraordinary, and in, oh, they're so adventurous and vibrant and Amazonian and educated and striving to make the planet a better place and they're caring and loving and observant and and they fight and they're really different. <laughs> they've, got, they've got that side too. They're 27 and 30 now. Yeah. <sighs> and what... No, 30 on Christmas Eve. Excuse me, I've already given her a couple of months in advance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean... What was that like as an adventure, just raising the two girls? Well, I, I suppose coming from the work that you, 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 you came from, the experience that you had and the things that you'd learnt along the way, like what sort of, how did that change the way you parent? That isn't a simple question to answer and I won't take too long with it. Um, the two things that impacted me becoming a mother, well, no, let's, let's say three. And I was very happily one of those people that as soon as I saw that baby, I was in love. I, I felt this, this roar of protective maternal, you are never leaving my side. You are the most amazing. I can't, what? You're taking it to do what? No, bring back. That's my baby. And I, I was so in love with my children and... At the same time, that created an overprotection because I was worried what they might be exposed to. Yeah. I had learned too much about what can happen to children who are yeah. protected and nurtured and looked after. And so I was always, I wasn't a helicopter parent because I was constantly checking myself and balancing and don't do that because they'll think you're really over the top. <laughs> <laughs> so that, but then, yeah, there was that. And the second part for me that was intensely difficult is I hadn't had any maternal role modelling and I didn't have a mother to help me. So I actually felt really isolated and alone when they were little. 
And being in social work and working with babies and children for the last, (laughs) I was an expert. Um, One of the higher incidences of postnatal depression comes within people who are in professions where they should be able to do it. They they, they feel like they should be able to do it. Correct. And then it's just overwhelming. Yeah. So when people set their, their own expectations too high. Exactly. That happened to me. I, I had postnatal depression with both of them, primarily because I, I thought I was going to do something wrong. I thought, I thought if I left them, if I, I used to have dreams about leaving them in the car and I'd come out and they'd be gone, or rolling over onto one in bed if I'd fallen asleep. All the things that you taught about, don't do that, yeah. don't do that, and there's so many more now. Um, that haunted me, and I couldn't let them cry. Because in the back of my head, that cry was saying to me, Mum, where are you? Yeah. I need you. And and it didn't matter how many Tresillion days I went in, how many <laughs> education. I knew all that stuff, but the torture pull to go and nurture and soothe and hold and rock and be with that baby that was calling for me, I had to do it, which meant I was up. All night I was feeding 19 times a day I was really dysfunctional in my parenting because yeah. and that must have gone on for I, ages I, I was over yeah 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 and then I had another one so they were two and a half years apart and so I virtually didn't sleep for five years or so but, <laughs> yeah it was long it was it was long and I did um, have therapy and I did go on antidepressants to manage it and it did get me through, but I remember waking up in mornings if I would get some sleep and just imagining how long the day was going to be. Yeah. And was I going to have a chance to have a shower? Well, I guess that didn't matter. And was I? Would, how would I get out of the house? I don't. I don't know. I'll, I'll have twenty-four nappies to change. I'll have <laughs> bottles to do. I, I don't have any shopping. Like it was just this long, long day yeah with moments of joy and then it'd just be overwhelmed by the how large this task was that I'd given myself and how much I wanted to be perfect doing it yeah so the as I said I don't take credit for how extraordinary (laughs) I I must have done something right but I don't think it was necessarily because I had my act together I was completely centered and Incredible when I was a new mum. What, what, yeah. what do you think you've learned from your daughters? My two daughters are so similar. If you saw them walking along the street together, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. They've got the long hair and the stride and they're the same height. They're both nearly six foot. I think they got that from dad, but certainly not from me. And they're laughing and they gesture, but their spirits are incredibly different in that my eldest daughter is a professional storyteller and her whole remit is to find joy and beauty and to celebrate creativity and to play and laugh. So she runs play workshops and laughter workshops and revision and dancing to get into tune and come back into your frontal cortex and tell stories of magnificent um futures of I like her she dresses up she has face paint on and she doesn't she her favorite tv program station is disney plus at nearly 30 (laughs) 
She knows every single Disney story and loves and shares. Oh, she's, she's just amazing. So what she has taught me is to look for the positive and to be creative and play and laugh. When things seem dark, find a space to go back to your inner child and discover the giggles you can get when somebody's name's really funny, like Russell Sprout or... <laughs> I did know a boy called Russell Sprout. I don't know what his parents were thinking. But I, yeah, yeah. No, I'm pretty sure I know what his dad was thinking. This is going to be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So those where I go, oh, God, I still got the giggle. Okay, I'm fine. My eldest, my youngest daughter is um, an activist and an academic and researches and studies and loves learning and finds herself in wilderness to let go of technology and will not believe anything until she's absolutely certain she's figured it out and read as much as she can. And she's currently working with the government in Canberra on the environment and sustainability portfolio and she's doing her thing and in between she was just off walking the Lara Pinta Trail with her beautiful man and said, like, I'm going to be out of contact for three days. Don't worry about me. We're just going to go bush. <laughs> That's awesome. And she was, she, she was arrested on top of coal trains, stopping <laughs> them from crossing over <laughs> Indigenous lands. Like, so in terms, of, in terms of that, she looks, she wants to save the planet. She goes through my garbage and finds the tiny bit of <laughs> silver on the top of the plastic bottle and said, that shouldn't be in recycling. <laughs> okay, so what has she taught me? <laughs> that I need to be better at recycling, that I go she bought me a compost all right, so I could a little one in the house, but more to be articulate and to really do, don't take things at face value. Don't believe the conspiracy theories. Don't don't have somebody convince you. Do your own research and, and own it. Yeah. And if something's not right, say something about it. So between the two of them, it's a beautiful balance. And they're both living their best lives. And my greatest gift to them, and also one of my biggest losses, is to give them their freedom to choose where they want to be and how, how their lives are being lived. And I would so love them to live in the next suburb around the corner. <laughs> yeah. I could see them all the time. Yeah. But I know they're loving what they're doing and haven't seen my oldest daughter in three years and I've just booked a ticket for her to come back in January. That'll be four years far out. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you as well, because you took them on an amazing holiday, <laughs> didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my family are all around the world. My mother currently lives in Rome. She's been there for nearly 40 years, and before that it was New York, and before that San Francisco. So I had to do a lot of international travel, and my whole maternal family are in the States, or a lot are in Italy now. <clears throat> this is a long way round. So they travelled with me forever, because primarily instigated by catching up with family. And we got braver and braver, and then I have this amazing magazine called Out and About with Kids, which seemed really relevant because I was the person with the six-month-old baby who screamed for the whole 17 hours that the entire plane had to So why am I doing this? This travel with a kid. i got to write about this. And then the, the seven days of 
baby not adjusting to any sort of time difference. So we were just, I don't think I slept for about 10 days straight. But <clears throat> the last we the last trip we had before COVID hit, my youngest daughter was studying environment and sustainability over in Stockholm University, the pinnacle of the world. And my oldest was living in England in a place, Devon, Totnes in Devon, yeah. which had no, the the world, yeah, maybe, which had the world leading bardic storyteller. And she was over there learning bardic storytelling, which I've always had in the back of my mind, and it's not diminishing, but it helped me, was the whole Monty Python singing through the forest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she had a harp, and she has the flowing capes, and she'll put some beautiful reel up where she is singing above daffodils or bluebells. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> Near her home with her harp. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, so she was there and I was, in, and my mother and their nonna was living in Rome and my brother lived in New York, but his children live in Iceland. They're in Reykjavik. So we were all, oh, yeah, it's, I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were meeting for Christmas in Rome at my mother's place and we had the most incredible, sensational, reunion-style Christmas and then I took them both for 10 days up into Finnish and Swedish Lapland in the middle of winter <laughs> That's so where good. there was only two hours of twilight. Every, it, the sun yeah, not even sun, the horizon. <laughs> no, we never saw the arc of the sun. Did you see the northern lights though? <laughs> we were so lucky. In the 10 days we were there, we only saw them once and it was on day three. So we thought we'd hit pay dirt and it was going to happen every night. And we were staying at this incredible place on Lake Yeris and everybody got a little pager and the staff were pretty much on roster until they went to bed because it was dark all the time. You couldn't yeah. tell. I had no track. It's the worst jet lag I've ever had I can in imagine. my life. <laughs> Because you usually get out in daylight to stabilize. Did you did your days did your days stretch out or did they shrink? Like, did you find yourself getting tired and ready for bed at like six p.m. or did you find yourself staying no. up till three in the morning? Uh, it depended. The first place we had a, a, a sauna in our own <laughs> little lodge, so we would sauna ourselves after dinner, which was reindeer sausages or meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. And then you just had no idea what time it was. And the whole time you're on alert because the lights, the lights, they might be happening. And every now and then it would buzz. And people, do you know how long it takes to put on enough clothing so that you don't die in minus 25? <laughs> It's not quick. Yeah. It's not. It's like, quick, quick, quick. Oh, my gosh, where's the camera? You forgot you're under legs. Oh, yeah. And everybody's tumbling out in thigh-deep snow onto the lake to figure out if they could see the lights. And we had three of those, and it was some little green sparkle in a distance. And then one night um, when we were there, I booked the go out to the middle of the lake <laughs> where there's absolutely no light. There's not much anyway. <laughs> and they would have a tent that you could have hot chocolate in a little fire if things got too much and you'd be in the back of the sled covered in reindeer fur. And it all sounded just amazing. It was freezing. It was the coldest I have ever – I thought I was going to die. I didn't think I had fingers and I had every everything proper and I was oh, – 
out we went. And I thought, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> and then it happened. Oh, wow. They, they arrived. And it wasn't just the green sparkle of the light. It was pink and orange and purple and waves of light going across the sky. And it kept going and going and going. And... Our guide said, I haven't seen this much light and magical dance in months. You guys are so lucky. And that's it, if that was the only one we got, and it was, it was absolutely magical. And we all just lay out in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think I froze a bit. I have a, one of my fingers isn't quite right. <laughs> so that was, yeah, we did see them. We did. But the second most spectacular thing is husky sledging. Oh, oh, oh yeah. everybody has to do that. Yeah. If it is just those dogs and being out in the wilderness with they love it. They don't stop. They gulp snow to drink on the way and <laughs> go and they just the barking is insane because all they want to do is run and yeah. it's their joy. And I I felt kind of guilty. You gotta balance on the back and learn <laughs> Yeah, we went um snow machining. I fell over five times, <laughs> but in snow. So, and, and when you go over in the snow, you actually they can't see you. Well, although you said because my my wife Sarah bought me um, husky dog uh, tour for my fortieth, and it was fantastic. <gasps> and and the guide got me. He said, "Right, put your helmet on." And and get on the yeah. back. I was like, "What do I need a helmet for? Like it's snow." Anyway, we, we charge off, ran the first corner, and I cut it too close yeah. to the tree. And of course, it flipped the oh, cart. Yeah. I landed, but it, we don't have much snow here. We have ice, and I bounced my head off yeah. the ice and rung the bell. And I'm oh. like, "Ah, oh, so that's why you wear a helmet." Okay, I'm glad we put yeah. that on though. But um, it's so good. And then stopping out in the middle of nowhere and cooking a barbecue for lunch or something like that. It was sensational. Oh, I absolutely loved it. We also were very fortunate. Um, Haraniva Resorts. I can't do it. I can't do the finished thing. <laughs> the most beautiful family. There's a Five generations of them that have owned these resorts. And because I was hosted as media and my daughters came along, we were a little bit special. Yeah. And so we got to, got to meet them all. And I learned how to party in a finished way. <laughs> so how do you party? <laughs> oh, hilarious. There was this limbo stick and they put on man from down under and so we were there and they have this. <laughs> so she, have you ever done, I've never done shots like this, but shots on the bar and I think it was, Creme de Monts and some <laughs> Baileys or something with cream on the top. It was called birthday cake. Ah, uh, yeah. Know. I'm pretty and sure you I've done that. Put your, your hands behind your back. <laughs> I'm going, uh, I, I'm showing <laughs> yeah, yeah. how I do this. It's, it's not good. And then with your mouth full, you tip your head back and that you're not allowed to touch it. Everyone goes, <laughs> and off you go for more dancing. And I, and the sauna. You drink in the sun. There's food on the outside. You just spend your whole life. It's a social scene in there. We just we went. And they had a lake that you're supposed to encourage to. It's called the ice hole. How yeah. to do ice hole. Oh, wow. No. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. <laughs> Full on Wim Hof. Uh, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They both did. And so I stood outside steaming because you come out of the yeah. sauna. Into, yeah. And watched them. I thought, yeah, I'm 
I would be that person that would have a heart attack or freeze in one block and just fall <laughs> to the bottom of the dark lake. It was a little bit too much for me. But the thing, it was interesting. We wanted to go. Oh, oh, and Sam, my eldest, her birthday's Christmas Eve, right? Yeah. As a little one with birthday, birthday, birthday all morning. And then Santa was coming. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, how much joy can you have in one day? I think four or five years, it was so exciting. She just went to bed crying from too much stimulation. <laughs> it was, Santa's coming tonight. My birthday present, but Santa's coming. <laughs> we, we, we met Santa. She met Santa. Because awesome. that's where he's from. <laughs> Santa's from Finland. Legit. <laughs> we went on a yeah, little sledge in through to his house. And he was it was the best real Santa. There's no doubt he was the guy. I've had real beard. Real beard. <laughs> and then she got a present. <laughs> <laughs> That's a 27-year-old who cried. <laughs> like, no, this is my dream. I've met Santa. Video. <laughs> oh, it was so special. And I was just going to say, the reason that that trip, it wasn't easy to organise. They're busy. Hmm. Just say, come with your mum. We're having yeah. 10 days together after Christmas. Like, what? We have lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> take yeah, how much leave? Yeah, I'm going to take you. So please come. We've got flights. We've got the, the whole thing's been organised. And there was a little bit of, oh, okay, <laughs> oh, we better. We all agree. It's the most spectacular thing we have ever done. And part of that was because none of us had been there before. Yeah. We had no idea what it was really going to be like. And it was better than anything we could have imagined. It's interesting you say that, Lisa, because I think my. My desire is to sort of show the kids places that I know and love, but I've heard from yeah. friends that have gone to new places and they said it's way better because you're experiencing it all with fresh eyes and it's an adventure for yeah. everyone. You're on a level playing field and everyone is yeah. is new to it and it's a much better experience and it's it's really opened my lens to, yeah, maybe that is the way to go. And to sort of let go of some of the, and maybe a bit, a bit from option A, a bit from option B, but um, exactly, but definitely, no, do the 50-50. yeah, but but yeah. definitely not just to take them to all my favourite places. Oh no, do that too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, you can. Yeah, well, how, how much, how much <laughs> opportunity have you got? Really? No, I, t- I took my kids every year to America, every second year to America to see their families. Yeah, and they, we went to Disneyland every time. <laughs> Isn't that scary? I know. And I, I'm a wilderness person and I love not being in crowded cities and, and spending too much time in high-rises or big, I don't necessarily, cruises aren't at the top of my list because it feels too confined and yeah. just like to be able to get away and apart. But Disneyland's really special. Yeah. It is. I got a Disney heart. We did Disney Disney in Tokyo. Tokyo Disney was pretty awesome. Tokyo Disney Sea. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. I, I travelled the world for theme parks. Yeah. 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 Totally. I yeah. mean, because that's 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 what you do, isn't it? That's your thing now. Yeah. I've always wanted a luxury spa magazine. I think I might be aging out of it. <laughs> Because you've got to, as as a publisher and editor, you've got to go and experience the things I want you to write about. I'd really like a luxury spa. That would be good. I did go to an onsen that night after Tokyo Disney Sea, though. Yeah. That's pretty fun. Onsen onsen in Japan, that's where it's at. It's so good. Yeah. 
It's it's my favorite thing about when I lived in Japan. Hands down, some of the best experiences. There was one that stands out. It was in um, this this little town, and you couldn't even well, we couldn't find the place. We we had someone to actually <laughs> take us to this onsen because it was down this tiny little footpath uh, uh, down the side of this mountain. And I was like, Sabro, are you sure we're even going to end up at the right place? And he goes, yeah, trust me, follow me, follow me. And we get down there. And when we get into the building and out onto the deck, because they have these big cedar decks overlooking this bamboo grove across a valley. And, and it was so cold outside, the mist was rolling up the valley and it looked like the ocean just rolling up in front of us. And we had, you know, full full vision of the whole valley while sitting in this onsen and it was just sensory overload it was brilliant absolutely amazing and then you go for a sleep lie down in the sleep room wear a new yukata and then have some noodles and a beer and then go back and do the whole thing again and ah it was just next level it was so good so you've taken your kids to do that haven't you we have yeah it was actually annie my eldest it was her when we, we we actually did a house swap and went to nazawa onsen uh, we've got a friend that um, runs a, a hotel there and he and he wanted to bring his family to Australia. So we switched for three weeks and, and, and he really didn't like the whole sort of getting naked to jump in an onsen with, you know, the other women and stuff. It was a bit confronting. <laughs> she was only young. Yeah. And then when we came back, she drew this picture at school of her favorite experience from the holiday. And it was a picture of her and her mum. Uh, nude in a Japanese onsen and it was like it was a full 180 from the thing she didn't want to do the most to the thing she loved the most and it was just a a great sort of arc my um experience at the Tokyo Disney Sea Hotel onsen was my first time in an onsen and they did explain it to me a little you know how they have the face washer size towels yeah well, I thought I thought it was a towel. Like, and I thought, what's that? That's not even going to cover one breast. Like, what? What am I supposed to? How? How does this work? And I went in. Everybody's on their stool, scrubbing their feet and brushing their teeth. And I was the only non-Japanese person in there. And I must have been twice the size of anyone else. And there were quite a few boys who were heading towards puberty, but in there with their mothers, because they were too young to be alone, perhaps in the men's one, or maybe that's culturally acceptable. But I swear every single person in that onsen turned around to stare at me. (laughs) And I tried to walk out with this tiny little square of white um, (laughs) to protect. I'd be like, where do I put alcohol? Oh, so I fully understand, yeah, the the reluctance before you become comfortable and accepting. And the fact that everybody was looking at me was a challenge in rising above it. I think they were probably checking me out to make sure I was clean enough before I went in to the water. Yeah. That I did it right. I was pretty sure one of those women was going to come over and say, "You did not scrub your finger. Get back over there. Go." It was but the sleep. You're absolutely. Oh, yeah. Had the sleep it's after that. The best sleep. Yeah. Yeah. What's well, your turn to do? Finish sauna. You've got to try that. Yeah. Sauna. Yeah. yeah. My friend's just built one in his backyard, and uh, he he did a lot of tour guiding in Finland. And it's just something that really resonated and you had to bring it back and just go, it's the sauna. I need my sauna. 
So, and you know the classic that they say, and it's true, they have more saunas than cars in Finland. Yeah, that's a good stat. I like that stat. I think we should all strive to to have more saunas than cars. In in Burger King in the cities, and it, I mean, there's such a common wow. life to have a sauna. You've got to respect that. And children, babies, celebrations, families, anyone can go in. There's none of that. <laughs> you cannot enter unless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Throw them all in. Yeah, you can have one too. Hey, family, time for the sauna. Bring the beer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. Uh, that's oh. awesome. Uh, Elisa, this has been this has been a wild ride. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. It's it's great. <laughs> what, I, I, what are you going? What are you going to call this? I thought we had a couple of agendas, and we haven't. We've just you've, gone you, on a no, wild we, ride. We went on a wild ride, but the thing is, we covered all the things that we wanted to cover. Like you, yeah, you nailed it. Well. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Lisa. If you'd like to check out her magazine, Out and About with Kids, I'll share links on thedadmindset.com. If you've enjoyed this episode and know someone else that might appreciate it, sharing really is caring. So please give it a good share. Anyway, that's all from me for now. I hope you have a great week. And as ever, enjoy your caffeinated beverage.